The letter of Jude. We're going to look at the first 16 verses this morning. First, we will read God's word, and then we'll ask for God's help and blessing and understanding his word as we study it together this morning. Jude, beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 16. This is God's holy word. Once again, dear friends, take care how we hear it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word, may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Let's pray together. O Lord, this is your word. 
and we need it. We shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So help us now, by your Holy Spirit, to read and mark and learn and inwardly comprehend all that we study today. Grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry and illumination, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's an unpopular mantra, an unpopular truth or ism in these days, but the truth is Christianity is war. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Paul says in Ephesians. The enemy of the church has been defeated, but he is doing a lot of kicking and thrashing and wreaking havoc along the way as he is hauled off to his eternal prison. And thus, as at least one well-known pastor has famously said, we need to recalibrate our expectations. The better metaphor for the church for life as Christians is not so much that life is a cruise ship, but that the church is a battleship. The church is a battleship. We are at spiritual war. And while often we would prefer the Christian life to be a cruise ship, in reality it is more often akin to life on a battleship. I think of the letter of Jude, which we've read just in part this morning. It can be a confusing book, a strange book with fantastical, odd imagery. It is short, it's obscure, it's out of the way, it's often passed over for more well-known books of the Bible. But it is a short book that is packed full of doctrine and insight, and it helps us with, some of the, with a basic definitional understanding of Christianity. Now, while much of the New Testament is about reconciliation, and rightly so, Jude helps us understand another fundamental aspect of Christianity. The church on earth is, as has been classically designated, it is the church militant. The church militant. You know the line from one of our well-loved hymns. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church is one foundation. Jude helps us understand some of our battle time reality. He writes a short letter, but there's a lot to consider, so we're going to begin a short two, probably three-part series on this little book. Jude was the brother of James, and so the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And if you look there at verse 3, you'll note that Jude had intended to write to the churches a general letter of instruction, but he feels compelled by the circumstances to adjust the agenda of his message. There in verse 3, although... I was very eager to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He is compelled by necessity to write a letter, not so much heavy on theology and instruction in truth in general, but rather to write a letter that is heavy on warning and alarm. Jude, as one commentator said, is a wartime missive from the heavenly commander-in-chief to his soldiers, soldiers fighting and bleeding on the front lines of a fierce spiritual battle. Jude is giving us the rules of engagement as the church militant marches to war, close quote. And so today I want to see four themes, I want us all to see four themes that run through these opening 
16 verses. A Christian's understanding of his own identity, a Christian's understanding of his assignment, a Christian's understanding of the opposition, and a Christian's understanding of the fallout. Four things to guide our study this morning. So first thing, verses 1 and 2, the Christian's understanding of his own identity. Look there at verse 1 and you see the descriptors that Jude uses to address his audience. He's writing to those who are called. And then the other two phrases, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Those two phrases flesh out more fully what it means to be called. Now Jude, as we saw just a moment ago, he's going to say some very challenging things, perhaps some unpleasant things to receive or hear about false teachers and about immorality. And before he leads us down into his instructions and into his exhortations for our, our wartime mentality and our wartime living, he wants us to understand our true identity clearly before he gets to that so that we might be encouraged and we might be made ready for the fight. So he begins here. His first doctrinal point is to underscore the believer's self-understanding by highlighting their calling And of course, by calling, he's referring to the effective, powerful, irresistible, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, who through the preaching of the gospel draws people into union with Christ Jesus. He works new life into their hearts. He illumines their understandings, and he gives them the gift of saving faith. You know, the classic illustration of effectual calling, the classic picture of calling really is Lazarus. You remember that story in John 11? Lazarus, he's dead. He's buried. He's in the tomb. He's totally unable to respond. He's totally unable to alter his own condition. He was dead. And then Jesus called him, Lazarus, come out. And at the word, at the summons of King Jesus, he sprang forth, unable to resist the command of his king and maker. And he strode out strode forth from the tomb alive. That is the picture of calling, of effectual calling. Those who have been called, as Jude says, that's what's happening. God in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is summoning those who were once dead in sin. By grace you have been saved, called forth into new life, into communion with my son. The called of God, Jude addresses these Christian people. And more than that, the called are beloved in God the Father, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, aren't those glorious descriptors for your biography? Not just beloved by God, that's true, but as if that weren't enough, but beloved in God the Father. When you were called to new life through the gospel, you were placed directly into the path of the love of God called and beloved. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, that is fundamental to your identity. It's who you are. Beloved, cherished by God the Father. Now some of us, I know, have a hard time believing that God would love such a one as us. I've had these conversations with a number of you. For some of you, you have a difficult time apprehending or believing or internalizing this teaching is because you've never understood what the love of a father is like or some other significant figure, a supposed loved one in your life. 
And so because of that, the scars that you bear, the deep and abiding emotional wounding, render such that you doubt that you could ever be loved. Now for others, it's because love was never sure or certain. You, you had those in your lives that supposedly loved you, but it was always conditional. It's always conditional. It was just a tool for manipulation to leverage you to conform to their demands. And that love or that affection was withheld, as often as it was given, whenever convenient. Love was a tool to dispense or to withhold in order to get what they wanted out of you. Others of you have such a seared conscience, such a burden of shame. You read the Bible, you read the scriptures, you read God's word, you believe that God has forgiven you in Christ because that's what it says. But you're not quite sure that he loves you. Perhaps God tolerates you. Because of the blood of his son, he's legally obligated to let you into heaven. But he doesn't particularly have any disposition of affection towards you. He's under contract. I'll let you in because Jesus, my son, did what he did. But I do it begrudgingly. Is that your conception of God the Father? Oh, my friends, no. No, no, no. Many commentators draw our attention to Psalm 2 in connection with this passage. Psalm 2, you know it. It pictures the father telling the son that one day he will give him the nations for his inheritance. Well, the marvelous thing is, is that if you are a Christian, you are the prize that God the Father has prepared for his son. The seed of Abraham, called and gathered and redeemed from among the nations. You are his prize. You are his inheritance, his treasure. One commentator says, you are not one Christian to whom God may throw some tidbit of grace, some crumb of leftover mercy and love your way. No, no, you were planted directly in the path of the central stream of the unceasing love of God the Father. Close quote. Beloved in God the Father, and you are kept for Jesus Christ. That's who you are, child of God. Beloved in God the Father, cherished by him and kept forever secure, tenderly, purposefully, eternally in Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. That's who you are, child of God. And then following the common letter writing customs of his day, like so many epistles, Jude offers a prayer for these loved ones. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, explains what Jude is saying here. Those who are sanctified and called, he says, still have need of mercy, peace, and love. I wonder how often you think about that. Those who are called by Christ, those who are sanctified in Christ, still have need of mercy, peace, and love. And so you see these things, these two things put side by side. Our identity, who we are, called, beloved, kept, and yet, for all the riches that are ours, we still need mercy and peace and love. And Jude knows that we need more. This is the reality, as we've already mentioned, that we are in the midst of a dread spiritual battle. Our stupid, our stupid sin trips us up. Our stupid sin trips us up and it frustrates us and it discourages us and it makes life even more difficult and it alienates others. The truth is, temptation is powerful and Satan hates us. The world mocks our message. The world mocks our Savior. 
There's subtle doctrinal errors, and there's false teaching that bedevil various wings of the church all the time. Get out of here. We'll see how much I've made him mad by that point. We need help, and Jude knows it. And so he helps us to look back at our identity in Christ to be reminded of our security, who we are, and by reminding us of our ongoing need, who we are in Christ, and at the same time those who need further aids in grace. The task in front of us as a church bearing the gospel message and living as God's people in a hostile world is an overwhelming part And without a clear grasp of our security and our identity, I dare say we should be racked with paralyzing fear. And so Jude wants us to grasp who we are, and he wants us to know the resources of God available to us. Abundant, multiplied mercy, multiplied peace, multiplied and abundant love as we face the conflict and as we face the combat ahead of us. We go not into the battle, we go not into the challenge empty-handed, but with a storehouse of overwhelming resources of grace pouring out upon us. So that's the first thing, a Christian's understanding of his own identity. Then secondly, a Christian's understanding of his assignment. Verses 3 and 4, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what's been happening in the churches. There are false teachers, Jude says, creeping in unnoticed, and Jude is sounding the alarm. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. So he's speaking there about that essential body of doctrine, the teaching, the biblical testimony, the core of Christianity that Christians must believe. These things are under attack. Now, one commentator points out that there are two lines of attack. It's a a two-pronged enemy strategy. There's a moral assault on the one hand and a theological assault on the other hand. There are ungodly people, Jude says, who pervert grace in order to excuse sensuality. That's the moral assault. And they deny essential truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the theological assault. How often these two things go together? Some of you in this room probably know that more keenly than I do. How often have we heard in recent years the the moral failings of prominent ministers or Christian leaders or even ordinary Christians? Heartbreaking stories. But here's the thing, and there are exceptions, I know, but in general, how often do we see professing Christians slide into apostasy and reject the truth altogether, driven primarily by a desire to make room for their sin. That's the great danger that Jude is alluding and alerting us to. And that's what these folks were doing. They were perverting the grace of God into sensuality. How often we insist on holiness. Well, you know, that's just dreadful legalism, they would say. Calling Christians to obedience in the details of our lives is to misunderstand grace. Grace means God 
is never disappointed with his children. Grace means God does not see your sin. Grace means God is happy with you no matter what you do. They pervert the grace of God in order to indulge their sensuality. Here's a good rule of thumb, friends. When you spot a theological error, a serious theological error, look for a moral root. Very often when you see the truth decaying in the life of a Christian or in the life of a church, that's what's really driving it. An accommodation. A desire to make room for sin. That's why Jude is so very important for us to be studying together in these days. There's a conversation that I was, I'm aware of that happened a few years ago. Two parties, these two men speaking together. We need to be pursuing holiness, says the one friend. Hey, 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 calm down. Don't be so rigid. Don't be so legalistic. God is a God of grace. Okay, but you're spending an awful lot of time with that female intern who isn't your wife. Uh, don't, 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 don't worry about it. There's grace for that. That's a real conversation. And that man has since effectively left the faith. Here's the warning, friends, what we need to watch out for. When we allow a disconnect between the truth we profess and the lives we lead, when there's that disconnect, there is a difference between trusting in grace and presuming upon grace. I'll never forget listening to a sermon a number of years ago. A preacher was preaching through the book of Hebrews, and he was confronting this idea of the Christian who says, well, I know I shouldn't do this sin, but it's okay. Even if I do sin, God will forgive me anyway. And the preacher responds, don't you dare presume upon grace. Don't you dare presume upon grace, or you may just end up in hell. I love Reformed theology, but I'm in denial about the abuse I bring to my wife. My laptop is chock full of adult content, but never fear, Jesus assuages my guilt, and all is well. These are rationales that I personally have heard, not here, but elsewhere. Friends, we cannot have a biblical Christ and pervert the grace of God into sensuality. There is a chasm of difference between trusting in Christ for grace and arrogantly presuming upon Christ for his grace. So we're being called into battle. We're being called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's a gospel that leads to purity and holiness. That's the second thing, a Christian's understanding of his assignment. But then thirdly, we see a Christian's understanding of the opposition. See, thus far Jude has warned about the false teachers, but now he wants, us to show, he wants to show us how to spot them. So in the next 10 verses or so, you'll see Jude piling up these images, descriptors of these false teachers, 14 different illustrations by my count. But before we look at those different descriptors more closely, here's the point. Here's the great point of all those colorful illustrations he's about to provide. First, verse 8. These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Then verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. One commentator notes that we're given three features of these false teachers in two different summary statements. You see the common descriptors here. First, they reject biblical authority. Secondly, they're filled with self-promoting pride. And then thirdly, they're moral failures. They reject biblical authority. 
They're filled with self-promoting pride, and they are moral failures. And the illustrations that Jude uses reinforce those points. Verse 5, he reminds them of Israel's story. He talks about their unbelief in the wilderness as they're journeying toward the promised land. In verse 6, he points to the pride of the angels who would not submit to God's order for them, and so they were cast out of heaven. In verse 7, he reflects on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their debauched lifestyle and their sexual sins. So there it is. Rejection of authority, terrible pride, and tragic moral failure. Or, look down at verses 9 and 10. Now most likely what's happening here, this, this bizarre story about the archangel Michael fighting with the devil for Moses' body, most likely Jude is using a story from outside the scriptures that was well-known. A a tale, a legend, a myth, well-known to the people. Something like the legend of St. Nicholas or the legend of Johnny Appleseed. An interesting legend, but commonly understood to be embellished or fabricated. It may even have been a story used by the false teachers themselves as they looked for some measure to justify their legitimacy. And so here's Jude being brilliant, using their own texts against them. They had a story about the archangel Michael arguing with the devil about Moses' burial. And Michael is the figure of a godly character. He exhibits great humility. The Lord rebuke you, he would say, to the demonic powers. He claims no authority for himself. The Lord rebuke you, not me, the Lord. These teachers, however, verse 10 They blaspheme what they don't understand. Arrogance. Pride. Or verse 11. The false teachers are like Cain. Dissatisfied, angry at God, killing his brother. Genesis chapter 4. Or Balaam in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. The prophet who was hired to prophesy against Israel. Now Balaam could not curse Israel directly, so he came up with a plan for Israel to bring a curse upon themselves. Balaam told King Balak how to entice Israel into sin, worshiping Baal and committing fornication with Midianite women. And so they did. And he was well compensated for it. Or Korah, number 16, who rebelled against God's authority and challenged Moses' leadership. They think they know better than the word of God and the servants of God. They are dissatisfied with God's providence. They are dissatisfied with their station where God has placed them and they make grabs for selfish gain. All in all, Jude says, verse 12, they are hidden reefs at the Lord's table. They are dangerous and deadly. As when a ship sails into a port and it cannot detect hidden beneath the water these unseen, disguised, hidden traps, they run against the reefs, and the ship and all its crew will soon be sunk and drowned. That, that is the effect of these false teachers. Hidden, subtle, crafty, dangerous, and deadly. They are, Jude says, like shepherds who are only out to feed themselves. Not the sheep. Fattening themselves at the sheep's expense. They're waterless clouds. That is, they appear like they will deliver refreshing, nourishing showers, and then they deliver nothing. Fruitless trees, they appear as if they will render ripe, delicious, nourishing fruit, nothing. Like wild waves of the sea, he says, they just stir up sea garbage. And so these men, verse 13, churn up their own 
shameful actions. Those are the marks of these people, fakes and shams. The point being is that fruit matters, brothers and sisters. Spiritual fruit matters. By their fruits you shall know them, Jesus says in Matthew 7. Yes, we must profess Christ. Yes, we must confess him with our mouths, absolutely. But saying you follow Jesus is one thing. But faithful obedience, the evidence of a lively faith, the fruit of regeneration, the fruit of the Spirit, adorning the gospel with good works and godliness, that is another thing entirely, isn't it? Let's be watchful, friends. Be on the lookout for false teachers as they infiltrate the church. And let us also be self-watchful. Search and guard and scrutinize our own hearts and lives that we may find our faith to be genuine. That we may not make a shipwreck of it. So that's the third thing, a Christian's understanding of the opposition. And then finally, the fourth thing to see is a Christian's understanding of the fallout. All these warnings on doctrine and living, why does it matter? Well, look at verse 5 again. There is a Savior who saves, Jesus. Praise God, hallelujah. But this same Jesus is Lord and judge, and he will return one day in judgment. He who saves also judges, Jude warns. For all who despise him, for all those who allegedly trust him, but the fruit of their lives betray that claim to the contrary. Destruction awaits. The rebellious angels are held in prison, awaiting for the final judgment. Verse 6. And Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their sins, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 7. Those cities and those angels, those are warnings and examples for us. They will perish like Korah's rebellion. Verse 11. When God sent fire from heaven to consume all 250 of Korah and his mutinous band. Like wandering stars, probably used for navigation. You want a fixed star by which to set your course. But these are like wandering stars. They wander. They aren't fixed in the sky. And so they mislead travelers into danger and destruction. Verse 13. All of these, these are pictures of what awaits this kind of rejection, this kind of wickedness. The blackness of darkness forever is reserved for such as these. Or look down at verse 14 and 15. Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch. Again, not part of Holy Scripture, but likely, likely to have been material that the false teachers were appealing to. A, a document, a source material that would have been familiar to the audience then. And even though Enoch is not Holy Scripture, the message that it gives is one that is quite in conformity to the message of Scripture. Verses 14 and 15. God is simply going to destroy all those who live ungodly lives and teach ungodly lies. So dire warning here. Why does it matter? Some you might ask. Why does it matter how we live or what we believe? Jude says that it matters because there is a judgment coming. God is holy. Sin is deadly. And without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. The message is simple. We as Christians, we are knee-deep in the thick of real spiritual warfare. Mere lip service to our faith will not suffice. Our lives and actions must adorn our profession of the gospel, or we will remain liable to the blackness of darkness as ever before. See, the enemy is real, brothers and sisters. 
His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate to assail the church in an effort to destroy her. We are at war. And Jude would not have us walk to the battlefield empty-handed and ill-equipped, but rather he would have us equipped for the battle to remember our identity, the love of God for you, the call of God upon you, and to remember that there is mercy and peace and love, the resources of God multiplied unto you as you head out into the fight. You do not go out empty-handed. So let us contend earnestly for the faith by the help and power of our triune God so that we might strive together Strive together to profess Christ, to confess Christ, and live for his glory, pursuing that holiness that matters, pursuing that holiness that will lead in the end to beholding his face in glory. Bless the word of God for its ministry to us this day. Praise God for Jude. Let's pray together. Lord, we do bless you for your word. We ask that you would seal it to our hearts and and grain it upon our minds. May it be sweeter to us than honey, even than the honeycomb. Enable us, O Lord, to contend for the faith, for the love of Christ Jesus. Aware of these things that we have been told to be on the lookout for and aware of these warnings to which we must be alert, but also availing ourselves of the resources of your power at our disposal. Striving for holiness, striving for purity not in puffed-up arrogance like these false teachers of old, but doing so out of love for God and so that not one of Christ's little ones should ever be led astray. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.